As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on. One of the big stories of the 2019 Formula One season was McLaren's revival, taking a comfortable fourth in the Constructors' Championship to bring an end to some tough seasons. The aim was to build on that this year, only for the season not to get going as planned. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to delve into the impact this is having on McLaren and its ambitions to re-establish itself as a top team are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, so Mark, uh, are you happy with the amount you're allowed to spend on this podcast, or are you uh, going to threaten to flounce off to IndyCar or Le Mans? <laughs> hey, look, you know, if you try and restrict how much energy I can provide to your podcast, I might just go and do another podcast about Rally Choppers or Can-Am or Glamrock or something. You can't restrict me in that way, Ed. I can't believe you don't already do a podcast about uh, about Rally Choppers. But, uh, but of course, uh, we've got to be careful about not misinterpreting your threats about how you're going to deploy your DNA. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is obviously you're referring to Ferrari talking about if the budget cap's brought down too low um, rather than lose valuable people and skills build up over many years within the company, it would uh, reluctantly um, diversify into other championships, uh, high-profile championships, possibly Le Mans, possibly IndyCar. So... Um, do we take that threat seriously? Um, I think it has to be acknowledged. Um, it's a it's a it's a possible way out of a of a of a bind that Ferrari might find itself in. Um, but let's see, let's see if it comes to that. Yeah, there's uh, well, it's it's a, a a different take on something we've heard a few times before. It's not a not a not a quit threat, but a, a diversification uh, threat. But uh, how, how about you, Scott? Are you uh, are you threatening to reluctantly diversify, or are you uh, all right? I was going to say I, I will. Um, I might make my own podcast, never publish it, and then display it in a museum. That might be my strategy. <laughs> very good, like the Ferrari six three seven. Yeah, very good. <laughs> um, I, I I would just add uh, to what to what Mark was saying. I think um, 
I think it is. Uh, I think it's a non-quit threat. Although it sounds slightly odd to say, a non-quit threat is more dangerous than a quit threat uh, from Ferrari for me. Firstly, because a quit, even a real quit threat from Ferrari is not a real one, is it? Um, but this is something that they might actually do. Um, I would imagine. I would assume that Le Mans is a little bit more likely than going off and doing an IndyCar engine program or something like that. But uh, yeah, I think um, don't dismiss it entirely. I certainly roll my eyes less at the prospect of Ferrari redeploying money and staff elsewhere than I do them walking away from F1, which is absolutely fundamental to their business. Yeah, uh, Formula One, it's often said Formula One needs Ferrari and, and it does, but also Formula One and Grand Prix racing has been very, very good to Ferrari over the years as well. There's a reason that it's been permanently around, basically, certainly in the World Championship era and obviously uh, in various forms before that. It's good to see, though, that the the spirit of unity and collaboration and uh, and one objective is still there for all the Formula One teams in these difficult times, isn't it? I, I'm, I, I, for one, am staggered that the politicking is now going on. Yeah, well, we're going to be. Um, it's quite. It's quite. Um, what's the word? It's quite fitting that uh, we've started this McLaren podcast with a few jokes about Ferrari, given that those are the two teams that seem to be positioned as at loggerheads over the very, uh, the very soul and fabric of Formula One. That there is a good point at the heart of this in that. Again, we are talking about real people and real jobs here. So although I think we all agree that you want to see a Formula One that's a little bit more equitable and sustainable and balanced, etc., you've got to be very, very careful when regulation might force jobs to be lost that aren't otherwise lost, which, of course, is why Ferrari is talking about potentially redeploying people. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you try and go from the size that the top teams have become over the last 20 years uh, down to how they were, 20 years ago it's too much of a shock it's too much of a shock to the system um and trying to uh trying to have a, a glide path down uh, in the current economic crisis is also uh, very difficult as well so you've got those conflicting pulls so it's it's trying to navigate a, a safe way through that that um everyone's trying to get its head around at the moment and also worth saying that times of crisis aren't necessarily the best time to try and do these big changes because sort of people are talking about this as an opportunity to reset F1, etc. But doing that sort of thing under duress, that is not the way to do it because you'll never get a good outcome that the focus has to be on the uh, on the short term at this stage. But this is going to run and run, isn't it, Scott, with just teams debating this and argue this, I guess because the timeline on it is slightly less urgent and they can spend a bit of time debating it then that does create a fertile environment for some uh, for some politics yeah they did a good job of working through a few short-term things didn't they with uh, delaying the rules and the, bringing forward and extending the shutdown and not allowing teams to to develop for the for the new rules uh, until next year um so the the short-term stuff was really good and there was genuinely I know that we were sort of mocking it a little bit but there was this sort of genuine sense of of unity when it came to the short-term stuff because it was urgent but as you say as soon as that little bit of uh, slack creeps in all of a sudden uh, the uh, leopard can't change its spots can it? Well should we move on to the main event and talk about McLaren? Uh, Mark uh, Andreas Seidel has has talked about the the current Formula One situation and how it might cause a few delays in the, in what he called its recovery program. Uh, given the the momentum the team had, the upward trajectory, how big a blow do you think this hiatus is to a team that's really got a lot of work to do and is making good progress, but has got lofty ambitions to in the long term to to get back up there? Yeah, I mean, it made a great progress last year from a disastrous twenty eighteen. 
and uh, took a clear fourth best of the rest after the big three teams in the, the championship. And that's about where his performance was as well. The, the position and the performance tallied quite strongly. Um, but there was still still over a second a lap off the pace, off the ultimate Mercedes pace, let's say. So, yeah, it's still a long way to go because that's where they aspire to be. They aspire to be back up, up the front. And that's that's quite a big journey they've still got to make. It's still a big part of that journey they've still got to make. Um, I think in one sense, the delay just freezes everyone at the point that they were at. Um, but if we're talking of trimming staff and programs to meet a really slashed budget cap, yeah, that means the bigger teams carry less advantage over McLaren, but it also means McLaren's own programs of improvement are slowed. So they're busy building a new wind tunnel, for example, which is a, a hugely costly endeavor. And if that has to be divided out into um, more than more than one year to get under the budget cap, um, it, 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 that would have an impact on the team's uh, competitiveness and how quickly it could um, re- you know, make make that progress to the front. Um, you know, Seidel was saying in that um, conference he did last week that the the big three teams are just better at everything. Because I, I was asking, I said, look, you've all got the same uh, restriction on wind tunnel hours and CFD capacity. What is it that they're doing better? And he said, basically, they're doing everything better. He said, it's not just about how much um, tunneled and uh, CFD time you, you you have it's it's about how how good your groups of people are um, at analyzing the data that those tools throw out and how many people that you've got to be able to throw at those problems um, and it's just depth and layers and layers and layers of of expertise that's, that's making the difference so long term yeah I think uh, a tight budget cap would be um, in McLaren's favour. Um, but it it could delay the journey a little. I would just add that, in, as well as the the short term impact of um, of pausing what's going on at the moment, so the, the 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 physical work, the infrastructure work at the factory that they've had, they're having to just wait to to actually to undertake. Um, the, the, there's also the the, the fact that it. it Going into going into this season with with a reduced number of races, or uh, and then carrying over this car into 2021. First of all, the fact that the the new rules have been delayed from 2021 to 2022 is 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 a fundamental delay. That the new rules were meant to be the the catalyst with which McLaren takes an even bigger step back to the front. So they'd now have to wait at least one year to to be able to do that. But in the short term, there are there are other consequences as well. One of the things that I find interesting is. What, the worst case scenario for F1 this year, and it is a case that F1 is planning for because it has to consider, consider it, is that there aren't any races or that it's a really, really short, uh, really short season. So what happens if, the, if there are no or hardly any races this year? How does McLaren judge the quality of the MCL 35? Which is the, 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 the brainchild of new technical director James Key. You want to make sure that the progress in 2019 wasn't just a, a fluke that the the aerodynamic processes have been properly refined and and that the they've been able to not only improve on the the weaknesses of the 2019 car but also that the ideas that that James wants to to deploy on the car are working as well 
Because where then when you get into, if you're carrying that over into 2021 as well, obviously that's all baked into the car. But then when you go into 2022 or whenever these new technical rules come come in, how how can you be completely confident that you're going to absolutely nail those rules if you don't have a full season of racing with this car to make sure that all your processes are in place and your aerodynamic ideas are sound? And not only that, but as well as evaluating where you are, the, the car and racing it and developing it is also a real world dynamic experiment, isn't it? It's a, it's a test bed for working on ideas and your theories of how to do things and to deepen your understanding of the underlying science. I mean, this is what you talked about, Mark. Teams, the best teams do everything better. And that's down to depth of understanding and experience and volume of data and just the fact that they've been through this process over the years and they've learned the subtleties and the tricks and particularly when it comes to some of the more complicated elements of uh, the way a Grand Prix car performs. So if you've got a truncated season, a condensed season as we will have this year, not only do you have less chance to kind of understand where you're at, but also less time to play with the car and learn and develop it. Of course, they'll be carrying it over into next season. So there's still time there. But every way you, you slice it, there is a loss of time. Fundamentally, it's, it's unavoidable. You can't, you can't fight that, can you? No, that's true. And um, you, when you have been on a, a program like the top three teams of just constant evolution of a of something that fundamentally works, um, you're going to have a much deeper understanding of the nuances of any any changes that are made than a team which is trying to make big steps to catch up to that level. It's just inevitable. So, um, yeah. And then picking up on the point that Scott made, one of the um, things about the the new regulations whenever they come in is that they've been conceived to make them the uh, much less, uh, say, budget sensitive in terms of aerodynamics. So um, if a, I don't know, a, a 20 million budget advantage currently buys you uh, half a second or a seven tenths of a second, the idea is that it might only buy you a, a a tenth of a second. Uh, so there, there's there's less differentiation aerodynamically possible between the cars in the new regulations than the old ones. And that that w- will always be the benefit of those teams that were relatively, of the, to those teams that were behind the, the top three. And you've got to put McLaren in that bunch. Scott, we should try and discern roughly where we think McLaren are. Obviously, if we think to the uh, to the before times when uh, when the world was was functioning, we can dimly remember there was pre-season testing. So we, we have seen the 2020 cars running. If you think back, you might just be able to remember it. So it's worth kind of a refresher in where we think McLaren may be because pre-season testing was pretty decent for them, but still inconclusive. Yeah, I think it was more productive than it was um, headline-grabbing. Uh, McLaren were really happy with the mileage that they that they logged in in the first week. Uh, they were Carlos Sainz uh, was was pretty happy with uh, with what the sort of base uh, base car was doing in in week one, and he said that 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 was um, that was then going to be um, developed quite significantly for for test two and then the early races, and then in test two they seemed quite happy with the with the correlation. So uh, it, it's difficult to know exactly. I think they're I think the 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 potential of the um, the potential of the pink Mercedes, the the racing point was, uh, was sort of threw a bit of a curveball into the midfield mix, didn't it? I think if you look at the if you look at the 
conventional progression from from the other teams within this stable set of regulations. So you're looking at, say, let's say Alpha Tauri and um, and and Renault. Um, I, I think McLaren looked looked pretty decent, uh, but I wouldn't have um, I wouldn't necessarily have uh, bet my flat. Uh, that McLaren was going to go to Australia and be be best of the rest. But that is also partly because I don't own my flat, so it's not really mine to bet with. I think that's the art of betting, isn't it? Bet with, bet with someone else's money and uh, resources. That's a good way of doing it. But it, it, it's an interesting comparison, isn't it, Mark, looking at where McLaren is compared to, say, Racing Point. Two very, very different approaches strategically. Racing Point has, by its own admission, copied the uh, the Mercedes, but McLaren is trying to go its own way because that that's... The aim is that that will pr- produce a longer term potential yield. So, again, this is kind of a that that battle between those two is at the crux of a of probably a, it's the embodiment of a debate about the future of F one, isn't it? Whether you're a, a standalone operation or you're piggybacking on the work of others. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's going to be a very contentious issue, and I think if the season had started uh, in Melbourne, we probably have seen that. Um, develop into some sort of protest so uh that's that debate has been delayed for a while um but it i think it will still absolutely be um a point of contention when we we do get racing again um it's the 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 more competitive the racing point is um the the bigger a problem it's 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 going to be for um politically and the more of a hot potato it's going to be and mclaren and renault will be the two that are uh, um, probably going to be most vociferous in, in that and uh, in, in what constitutes, what actually constitutes a, um, a team's own car and uh, what what's just a, a direct copy of a, a rival. And this all ties in with what we're talking about, about the, the rules being delayed and the opportunity for McLaren to take that next step because, uh, you know, I asked Seidel at testing um, what he thinks of the the sort of model of the, the that racing point idea and um whether he thinks that's something that the the F1 will sort of evolve into longer term or if you can still stand alone and he made the point of this is what the the, the new technical rules are meant to be about that you will you will be rewarded for for standing on your own he wants to be a he wants to be an innovator again uh he wants McLaren to be an innovator again not not a not a fast follower as racing point have sort of classed themselves as and um yeah the 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 longer we're waiting that is that is an inherent part of that mclaren recovery program and yeah we're just they're they're basically treading water until they can actually get that get that opportunity to to put um well i guess their their plan into action it will be interesting when we do finally get racing to see what happens because there's there's been plenty of talk of potential protest. Renault has been suggested as, as the team that might do it uh, against uh, the racing point. And it's not necessarily even in the hope of getting the car rendered illegal, but it's almost about creating a, a debate and uh, drawing a line in the sand about exactly where being a, a constructor and being a not constructor, uh, where, where that line actually, actually falls. McLaren are frustrated about this. Seidel talked about this in testing, in fact, when he said, you know, what? where is that line about the transfer of data between teams? Because actually, if you look at the the wording of the regulations about about that on, say, something like aero, like you have to do your own aero, basically. That's that's one of the things you have to do to qualify as a constructor and therefore to be able to compete and uh, and to earn the, the money. But 
it's not ultra precise exactly what the definition is. I think people, everybody thinks they know what it means, but it's not necessarily quite as uh, emphatically in the rules as, as wanted to be. So if there is some kind of proper protest, it, it will be about the wider picture. And you can understand it really because there's this fundamental tension because I think you can go so far as a as a secondary team uh, piggybacking off another. But if you want to actually win consistently and win championships in Formula One, you probably do need to be a leader still. Yeah, you got to you got to be going your own way. It's the only way you're going to get an advantage. Um, otherwise, you you're forever going to be uh, behind whoever it is that they, they, you're copying. Um, I, I think McLaren's uh, aspirations to return to the front, where you know McLaren was always associated with being, you know, ever since the uh, Ron Dennis revitalized it in the 80s, it's been considered one of the absolute top teams until very recently, really. Um, that you know, the, the, the ambition to get back there means that there's no way um, McLaren would be uh, thinking of doing anything other than plowing its own furrow and, and doing it um, completely um, from its own initiative and its own um, expertise. So the 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 argument strikes at the very heart of what McLaren is trying to do. So it's I can see why they're so sensitive to it. It's an interesting situation McLaren finds itself in because it slid down from being a front runner into being a basically a back marker as it was a couple of uh, a couple of years ago. Arguably, of its own volition, should we say there wasn't some massive fundamental outside force that led. If you look at a team like say Enstone, there were there were big reasons why that team slip back from winning races and even championships as it was uh, uh, before that into really struggling and then it's sort of trying to rebuild again but McLaren fell behind before our eyes didn't it and although there were some reasons for it and you can go back to the uh, obviously the, the 100 million fine was a significant point because that did have an impact it's a an interesting experiment in kind of a team dropping back and then trying to catch up for those I mean it's basically a decade it spent falling behind the big teams isn't it Mark? Yeah, and I think um, in in the in the wake of the hundred million fine, um, it became a team that was riven by um, internal management um, um, friction and arguments, and those uh, those struggles went on over several years. And it was during those years that the team just progressively fell further and further behind. And I think the um, the switch to Honda Power, which uh, was no, no two ways about it. It was a very uncompetitive engine during the time that McLaren had it. Um, it it allowed McLaren to kid itself that its problems were just the engine, and actually it was continuing to fall behind. And it was a process that we'd seen beginning even before then. Um, and it just became um, absolutely clear um, two years ago, and uh, th- that that brought everyone there up short. And uh, since then, have been some pretty um, deep structural changes made, and this we we're seeing it sort of come out of that um, absolute dip that it got in, got itself into, um, and this is scrabbling back out. But it's several years in the making um, that that that, and so it'll be several years um, to get back out of it. 
we are actually seeing that, that there's at least some credibility underlying McLaren's aspirations now. Whereas if you go back to when they were really struggling, it seemed almost impossible that, that on the trajectory they were on, they could get themselves sorted out. But with the changes they've made, obviously they've got a very good team principal in uh, Andreas Seidel, who sets a very good direction. They've got good personnel in the key positions. So suddenly this idea of McLaren getting back to the front on a long enough timeline doesn't seem so ridiculous with the the way they're doing things, does it? No, it all just seems rooted in logic. And you mentioned Sido. I think he's, um, I think he's the strongest asset that McLaren's got at the moment because um, he just seems he seems pragmatic where he needs to be. Um, he seems to be uh, he seems to be quite a good uh, motivator, a good leader of people. Um, and I also think he's been very, very important in McLaren moving on from its um, Alonso dependency. I, I just, I, you know, you, I think you two are better placed uh, than I am to to, to comment really but my experience in 2018 was I I just got the impression of a that McLaren had slipped into this team that existed almost entirely to to serve Alonso and to 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 keep him happy and um, I I think it was a bit of a I think it was a bit of a distraction it was often an the, the, the Alonso show and there's no doubt that Fernando is obviously a phenomenal driver and I'm sure that a lot of the stuff he identified in 2018 played a big part in McLaren finally getting it right but I think it was I think Seidel and the the, the, the leadership change underneath Zach Brown that, that has come over the last couple of years has been important because it has just shifted things away from a how do we manoeuvre things in places? We want to keep Fernando happy. Fernando wants to do Indy. We need to do Indy as well. And now there just seems to be really clear separation of uh, responsibilities and a, a much clearer list of priorities in terms of getting the F1 o- operation a- a- up to the standard it needs to be. If you look at the the way that Seidel has approached it, I like the long-term strategic thinking. Things like the wind tunnel which is not an immediate return thing. You know, we often see with teams where they suffer is they want to be brilliant tomorrow. And in trying to be brilliant tomorrow on an unrealistic timeline, all you're doing is just locking yourself into this endless sequence of uh, of mediocrity. Whereas actually being able to have the confidence to say, right, we're going to do something that we're not going to feel any benefit for for several years at least, I think reflects very, very well, not just on the the potential of that long-term planning, but also Seidel himself and the security he's got in what he's doing in that he's not panicking about his own position, etc. He's thinking, right, this is the way I think it needs to be done. It's not necessarily going to pay me back instantly. And uh, there will be other, sometimes others will be a little bit more politically minded and worried about trying to look good tomorrow because they don't know they'll still be in a job in a few years. And I think that's, that's an important characteristic, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's, it, 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 when, when you're talking about, um, a, a team that uh, has a very clear objective of returning to where it was, which is at the absolute front. Um, you can, and, and and everybody's backing you up. The board is backing you up. The the finance people are behind you. Then you know it makes it it makes everyone so much more confident in the program because it it feels like it's not panicked, and it feels like there's a long term plan about this and everyone's buying into the plan and you might have setbacks along the way and you know hiccups but the long-term goal remains clear and you, you remain on that trajectory and the more you the longer you can stay on that trajectory and the more confidence you're inspiring 
with the people in the organization, the more attractive that organization becomes to talent outside of it as well. And so you can start bringing in talent at all the different levels throughout the layers of the, of the team. And, and it almost generates its own energy. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to engender, and it, uh, stability is um, a crucial part of it. Yeah, and basically, what you're almost talking about, well, what you are talking about, there is momentum, isn't it? There is, it's it's a kind of intangible thing, but it gives you benefits in all sorts of areas, whether it's recruit, recruitment, overall performance, et cetera, et cetera. It just, there's so many things you have to get right as a Grand Prix team that you do need to kind of get a, a, a snowball built up to have a chance of, uh, of building uh, to, to the level you want to, to get it to. Well, let's have a look at another one of the uh, significant long-term moves, Mark. We know McLaren's switching to Mercedes next year. Uh, the 2020 cars are being carried over, so there are restrictions in place governing how much things can be changed, and there are some limitations in what McLaren will be allowed to do, and there'll be a certain amount of oversight because they're the only team changing engines. Originally, this was nicely lined up for the new rules, but now it's coming in to a situation where not only are the rules not changing, but they've got to install it in the, the current car. So, how is that process going to work and do you think it's going to be a significant limitation for them? I think there'll be a small amount of compromise in it because it's technically um, it's, it's a different layout of engine to the Renault. The Mercedes is a different layout of engine to the Renault. Um, the Renault's got a combined turbine and compressor hanging out the back of it, whereas the Mercedes has got a split turbine and compressor with one at the front of the engine and the other at the back. And that's got implications on the packaging of the whole car. So it won't be a perfect integration, but with enough time, it should be possible to minimize the impact. It's, it's not, I don't think it'll be like when they transferred from Honda, which had a Merc-like layout, to Renault, which was so 11th, 11th hour, it caused all sorts of problems, not just um, problems that were sort of stitched into the car itself, but also um, reliability problems as, as a result of the, the hurried changeover because the decision was made so late so i don't think it's going to be like that there's been plenty of time will be plenty of time when we get when the shutdown ever um finishes uh to to make to make the transition um but it won't be perfect it won't be as good as if you designed the car around it in the first place and Seidel said didn't he last week that um he, I think he was asked, you know, can you can you make sure with the changes you're allowed to make, can you make sure that the new engine um, is incorporated in the most efficient way? And he he said no, it can't be in the most efficient way because <laughs> we're having to adapt uh, we're having to adapt a car designed around something else. So that, as you say, there are there are compromises. There's uh, there's a sort of a pro and a con to the to the Merck switch that that I see. The the con side is. Mark was talking earlier about all of those little things that the top teams are so good at and they just get better and better and better over time at them. And since um since departing from uh, from Mercedes engines after the after the 2014 season, um McLaren has been quite regularly changing a massive part of its car. Um uh, it's gone it, it, apart from Ferrari it will now have uh, it's now sampled all of this sampled the other three engines in the in, in this engine era um and as as Mark was just explaining about the the architecture of the engines everything's different so whereas all of these top teams the the works teams that have been been working on this really intricate um 
uh, the architecture and uh, how to, to implement that and have chassis and engine working in perfect harmony for, for years and years now. McLaren's changing between the two and it, and it is always about, okay, this isn't going to be a massive setback. We're still going to sort of get the a decent job out of it, but it's still it's not maximised. And this is Formula One, so absolutely everything needs to be needs to be maximised. So that's that's a con for me. The I guess the the pro is um, unlike how how it would have been if the technical rules stayed the same. They're not introducing the engine and learning about the engine in the first year of the new rule cycle. So what they will have the opportunity to do is have first-hand experience with that engine next year how it works how it fits what the architecture is like how it relates to parts of the car with with a free season effectively because in 2021 they'll be able to get that experience and then incorporate that when the new technical rules come in mclaren have talked about that while finishing fourth in the constructors championship it is an objective it's actually secondary to closing to the front on performance and it obviously it can seem counterintuitive to suggest they might be happy with finishing for the sake of argument, in sixth place, but we're closer to the pace. So, so what, what what do you think they mean by that? Well, the 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 dream scenario is that they're they're best of the rest again because they know that bridging the gap to the big three is not going to happen. So, the, realistically, the best case scenario is fourth in the constructors' championship and the um, the pace percentage deficit to the to the leaders is is reduced that's the ultimate sign of uh, of not only progress but also the fact that you're still doing a better job than the um than the opposition uh when again we're going back to testing now but i asked i asked Seidel about the um uh because the midfield battle is tighter than ever you've got racing point um racing point are doing what they're doing and Renault is a works team so um, with sort of minimum minimal room for, for improvement within the regulations realistically um, there's a chance that McLaren could get jumped again but the whole point is to keep chipping away at the leaders so what I asked Seidel was if you if you did slip back in the constructors championship because one of the others overhauled you but you cut that gap to the to the front three or to to, to the, the fastest team would you would you take that? And he said, "Yeah, absolutely." Because from their point of view, and I, you can take this as you can take this as them sort of not being entirely genuine. But their point of view is that everything they're doing at the moment is it's about putting bricks down and putting that foundation in place and getting to the point where you can then make a much bigger step in the medium term. And if they can, um, if they can get closer in terms of pace, it proves that their it proves that their process are right. It proves that their cars getting better. And while falling behind a Racing Point or a Renault this year would say that they're not doing as good a job as their opposition, you can still counter that by saying, "Well, Racing Point are in a bit of a one-off situation because they've copied a car and they won't be able to do that with the new rules because there won't be another car to copy in advance." And from a Renault point of view, Renault massively underachieved last year as a works team. So, is McLaren really slipping back if it falls behind a team that's got exceptional circumstances a, a, a year ago? I I still think there's a there's an argument there that the the trajectory is actually where where Sido and co would like it to be even if they're not necessarily fourth in the championship i'd argue that finishing behind racing point is much less of a concern than renault because renault is trying to do the same thing as as mclaren is uh but mark when 
when we're talking about this, it is, it is an unusual situation in Formula One these days because, yeah, they've always been the haves and have-nots. They've always been the group of leading teams. But particularly since those 17 regs came in, that chasm between the, the big three teams and the rest has been very, very much kind of set in stone, hasn't it? So this thing of kind of bridging across, to use a cycling term, to, to the league group is is a much bigger challenge than it used to be, which I guess is why McLaren are talking about the the deficit, the pace deficit being absolutely critical and you know if if you're finishing six and you're 0.1 of a percent closer on average pace that's not worth a great deal but if you're if you're finishing lower and you've you've halved the gap for example and the gaps are from the from the top three to to mclaren it's about one percent um in terms of the, the chasm so gaining say half of that is a big benefit should we say so it's all about the way this manifests itself isn't it yeah it is and it's 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 about the distinction between the short term and the long term um, so, you know, the short term, the difference a few million quid is going to make to them finishing fourth or fifth or fourth or sixth is, isn't that crucial. Um, but um, if they have finished fourth but were 1.2% away from the front rather than 1%, that's that's not good. That's, that's going the wrong way. Um, it's interesting you say that the chasm appeared um, – well, you, increased in 2017 with the new regulations and it's clear now that the the, the wider cars um, they pushed the limits uh, they pushed the uh, wind tunnels and um, the other um, tools to to much closer to the to the to their limits than they were with the narrow cars and you started to get um, much more complex uh, problems to solve aerodynamic problems to solve and which um, the big teams had the resource to do um, and the the smaller ones uh, didn't and it's one of the limitations that um, McLaren has found by um, not not having its own wind tunnel and it, it uses the Toyota one um, which is a great tunnel uh, for its time uh, in the early 2000s um, and Ferrari used it for a long time as well but it's um, it's it's clear that um, things have moved on, and it's it's one of the key limitations they have at the moment. It's funny, isn't it, when you look back at those seventeen regulations? They were they were a spectacular misstep, weren't they? I mean, it was known at the time, but the, the thing that I find most perverse about that is they set an objective with those, which was for the cars to be it was four to five seconds quicker than they'd been in 2015 wasn't it that was the objective and if you look at the the poll times over uh, over 2017 i think on average it was four and a half seconds different so they hit their target perfectly they set an objective hit it perfectly but it was the wrong objective and it and it they just became obsessed with downforce and more speed is is the the, the panacea didn't they scott yeah well, um i just think they got they got so obsessed with that that um it was almost like there was the the brains behind it then sort of got a few races into 2017 and were like, well, hang on a second. Why are these why are these cars that are really fast through the corners, have much shorter braking zones and are bigger, why are they not racing as well? And it was like nobody in, in that little bubble had actually considered it. Or they had, but they thought that the pure spectacle of what you see over one lap in qualifying, it m- made the big difference. But I think... We, you know, you can argue, or you can argue all, all you like about the about the the validity of those regulations. Um, one thing that didn't help is the fact that it doesn't matter how quick these cars are over one lap, because the the difference in pace between these the modern Formula One cars in qualifying compared to to the race, when everyone's just in con- conservation mode, basically, 
it, 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 it's enormous. So what? even if you were thinking, okay, regardless of how bad the racing will be with these new cars, it's going to be worth it because the spectacle is going to be amazing. If that spectacle is confined to a few laps on Saturday afternoon, I can't see how that's worth the trade. Yeah, it's one of the, uh, one of the eternal frustrations for me is how few quick laps you see uh, on a Grand Prix weekend from uh, people... That, you know, drivers are only doing a very small number of laps within one two percent of the ultimate pace of their car, which is a uh, which is a real shame, um, and yeah, a, a problem to be solved. But uh, coming back to to McLaren, let's have a little bit of a look at the driver lineup because I think that Carlos Sainz Lando Norris uh, pairing is a very interesting one. I mean, Mark, it, it strikes me as one to really watch when the season begins because you've got Science who's operating at a very high level. He took a he took another step last season and was at another level. Uh, and Lando Norris had a very, very strong rookie season. And in fact, I'd argue his his points tally relative to Science, given the bad luck uh, that, that Norris had. They both had some misfortune, but Norris was probably the most unfortunate driver on the grid. I think that, that exaggerated the, the gap. How do you see that that battle playing out when racing does get going? I think it's very interesting. Um, and I think it's it's poised very delicately at the moment um and we're going to find out the reality um you know because the general perception i think is that science is merely a very good driver and not a superstar and that lando as a potential superstar will ultimately prevail but and if he doesn't then then he wasn't a potential superstar that's a sort of general perception but what if science is the superstar he, he can make a very sound case for that i i believe that um, science sets the bar extremely high and Lando needs to be able to reach it consistently, not just occasionally. Um, that it, It's fine doing it occasionally. It's even expected when in your rookie year, but um, not really thereafter if you're to maintain your credentials as a potential superstar. So uh, very, very interesting. Lando's got an extremely tough job on his hands and I think... Um, if he matches science, um, just just you know, give or take a couple of positions, whatever. The just in general performance, if 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 you can't say bet- clearly between them, who's had the stronger season, then I think that's um, that's probably about as much as Lando could realistically hope for. But he may he may be thinking that um, he has to absolutely wipe the floor with science um, to keep that momentum going. But I don't think that's going to be possible. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating dynamic between the two of them because they've got this um, they've got this great relationship off track, um, but they were getting closer and closer on track um, last year. And to, to be fair, from early on, Lando proved that um, that he had at least the pace to put himself in the in the same vicinity as signs on track. Um, it's it's quite curious because. In terms of what this year means for their for their respective careers, um, they, they've both got a lot on the line because 2019 was I, f- I felt like 2019 was a real breakthrough season for Signs after sort of bouncing around the midfield a little bit and sort of being good but having some a few doubts re- remaining. I think he really really established himself as a as a classy operator in the in the midfield. So this is really important for him to to follow that up whether we go racing in in July, August, September or not until next year. Uh, He needs to follow that up with another really good season to prove that this is the driver he has become rather than it being other circumstances that brought that out of him. And obviously Norris, yeah, the, it's the it's the difficult second second album, isn't it, from a from an F one driver point point of view. So um, he he has to prove that all of the hype around him is um, 
it isn't just misplaced and how how that impacts their their dynamic with McLaren's going to have more on the line they're going to want to establish themselves as uh, establish themselves as being worthy of being part of this new era for for McLaren if they do enact their recovery program properly their their very careers in formula 1 might might be at stake so how all of that comes together is it creates quite an interesting melting pot there was also a an interesting trajectory between the two last year because Norris, you'd expect for a rookie maybe to start a bit shakier and then kind of build up as the season went on. But actually, we saw a certain amount of reversal of that with Sainz really asserting himself in the second half of the season, which was when the car was uh, was sort of getting better and a little bit more uh, predictable than under. And that's probably the one area of Sainz you'd look at and say, compared to Norris, I think Norris is quite happy with a with a car you have to hustle the hell out of. Um He's got quite a wide operating window in that regard. Science a few times when there's a certain level of instability has struggled a tiny bit. So it partly depends on the car. But Science is such a good, well-rounded operator, brilliant executor of races. And he's got he has got that touch of magic in races, which he's always had at times, where he pulls out pulls out of the bag really phenomenal results with just perfect race drives. I think the other thing to remember, and this is very positive for McLaren, is driver matchups within teams when you're comparing teammates it's not a zero-sum game it's not like one wins everything and whoever's behind loses what you can have is two drivers who perform at a very high level together and yeah one will do slightly better than the other but we could end up with Sainz and Norris being a very very strong uh, pairing and in fact if you look at that that matchup against say Racing Point where you've got Sergio Perez yeah, king of the midfield, really great midfield operator, driver I've got a lot of time for. But then you've got Lance Stroll, a driver with underlying ability, but he struggles to string it together. That could make a massive difference in that battle for best of the rest in the in the championship. And it shows why drivers are so important in Formula One, because if you look at Renault, McLaren and Racing Point, imagine all three of those cars had exactly the same performance level, then Racing Point isn't going to win that battle for fourth in the championship unless Stroll suddenly managed to click and get uh, and get everything together. So it's always good for a team, isn't it, Mark, to have two drivers like this, particularly when you've got a little bit of a dynamic of the up-and-comer with the... I, I hesitate to call Sainz an old hand because he's far, from, he's far from that, but he is an experienced Formula 1 driver. Yeah, it's true. And it's also... It, it, brings the most out of uh, out of both drivers as well to have that level of internal competition um they they can't do that thing that you sometimes see when a a driver is is clearly uh, quicker than his teammate he just, he just sort of i'm sure it's a subconscious thing they don't pull the really devastating laps out of themselves um they they just seem to have a, a different uh, comfort zone and so I think, yeah, you're going to see those two um, do that. You're going to see um, Ricciardo and Ocon probably do that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, 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 is, it is important to have a good matchup, but not a destructive one. And I think that's where the um, McLaren lineup is so good because it, 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 looks, it looks as though it is, it's competitive but not destructively competitive. And I'd be interested to see how the Ricciardo... Ocon one develops in that regard because I think there's potential there for that not to be a constructive one. Renault is going to be a very interesting place to watch, particularly you know with you've got Esteban Ocon coming in who's had some problems with with Perez before at Racing Point, and you know we know how good Ocon is, we know how good Ricardo is, so you've got two drivers there who are very, should we say, upwardly mobile, which is the same with the McLaren guys, but does seem to be a slightly uh, different dynamic. But it's great. I always think teams benefit from having 
it sounds stupid, but strong all-round driver lineups make a huge difference to a team because no matter what the, the potential of the car, it has to all channel through the driver. They're the biggest single variable. People, people suggest that drivers don't matter so much in Formula 1. And while the car designs the performance potential, the driver is the biggest single individual component in dictating how much that potential is, uh, is delivered, which is why it's, uh, it still matters. Well, hopefully we've uh, we've given a bit of a, an overview of where McLaren's at. I think it's going to be one of the interesting stories of the season to see how how that team progresses. And obviously, I think anyone, even if they're not specifically a McLaren fan, uh, will want to see a team of that 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 heritage and that famous name fighting back up at, at the front. And and it's not unrealistic that a few years down the line they could could get up to that sort of level. So thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. All sorts of written stuff there about the latest machinations in Formula One. Uh, Scott's very much on top of the uh, the political situation. Some uh, some great uh, some great analytical pieces from uh, from Mark as well, and of course all our coverage of esports and all the other. Well, I say and all the other motorsport that's going on. So what I mean there is all the coverage of esports. Uh, do check out our other podcasts, including the Gary Anderson F1 Show and Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. And head to our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race on YouTube and you should find us. We've uh, recently put up a uh, discussion video about Daniel Ricciardo's future situation with his his hopes of moving to a big team, perhaps jeopardised by the current situation in F1. Well, thanks for listening. Stay home, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. (laughs) 